right, good deal. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we have a lot to cover in a short period of time, so we can get out of here on time. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, we're in session eight, looking at the English Reformation and the Puritans. Uh, before we get started, I'm going to pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, I just uh, thank you for allowing us to be here this morning and, and just together with one another. Father, I pray that um, as we study the history of your church this morning, that you just uh, place a reminder on our hearts of, of the men who have come before us and women who have, um, who you've used, Father, to continue to build your church and to uh, just to produce the body that we're a part of today. And I pray that it encourages us and sends us forward out to do uh, your will. As in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so this morning, English, uh, English, the English Reformation and Puritanism, we're going to be looking somewhere from about 1520 to 1689. Uh, the English Reformation began with uh, the Bible being translated into English, um, and this would lead to the establishment of the English church, as well as uh, just continual reform to a more biblical pattern, now that the English-speaking world could understand the word for themselves. We're going to talk about the importance of William Tyndall for the work of the reform in England. We're going to explain uh, the circumstances that led to the Anglican Church, as well as summarize the work of Thomas Cranmer, explaining the significance of the 39 articles and book of common prayer that he wrote. Um, and then we'll move to the Puritans and discuss the uh, importance of their influence on the Church of England as well. Um, so we're going to be focused there. Uh, the, the English Reformation and Puritanism was really just a movement that was later birthed by the Reformation that we know from previous weeks was kind of kicked off by Martin Luther. Um, we don't have time to cover every person involved in this. We're kind of going to hit the high points as we move along. The dates are going to jump around. They didn't really follow a chronological order. It focuses more on individual people and times, and we'll talk about those times, and we'll kind of move to the next step. Uh, so in the last few weeks, kind of recap, to get our minds back right, we saw um, where John Wycliffe and the Lollards argued that the Church of England should be distinct from the Church in Rome. And they wanted to have a Bible available so that men were encouraged to read their, their, the Word daily. However, at the time, there was no English translations. So Wycliffe uh, began to translate the Bible into English from Latin. And there were some translational issues there, and it was forbidden to do that. Um, he and the Lollards, in their progressiveness, would, would really run into quite a bit of conflict um, for doing this. And later down the road in 1519, seven of them would be burned for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed in English. So then in 1483, we see Martin Luther is born. And he later lights the torch of the Reformation, of the Reformation by nailing his 95 Theses to the door of the church. Uh, something that, I don't know, it helped me. Somebody, I was listening to a podcast or something, somebody had heard this. But when I was studying the Reformation for myself, kind of what, what is the Reformation? Where does this word come from? And there's just a short little deal here that, that I thought was helpful to me. Hopefully it helps somebody else understand it. But uh, what, what is the Reformation? So at Pentecost, we see God form his church. In the first century, we see the early church fathers conform the church to the scripture and then later we watch as years of doctrinal decay and, uh, you know, Roman Catholicism deforms the church and kind of pulls her away from her core doctrines. 
And then here this morning, we kind of get to look at part of God reforming that church back to its biblical roots. So all this begins to take root. There's still no accurate, accessible Bible in English. Wycliffe had translated the Bible into English, but there was no printing press invented until 1440. So the few copies that were out there were handwritten, and it was, took a long time, I want to say around 10 months, just to copy one complete Bible. And there were some translational issues, remember, because it came from Latin to English. It didn't come from the original languages. Uh, so this kind of sets the stage in England for where we're going to pick up today. The first person that we're talking about this morning is William Tyndall. William Tyndall would later become known as the father of the English Bible and the father of the English Reformation, um, and later even the father of the modern English language. As he was translating the Bible, he, he literally had to create words as he went that would accurately depict what the Greek or Hebrew was saying. Um, so he was born in uh, 1494, and uh, these words, pardon me, uh, Gloucestershire. So he was born to a respectable and uh, reasonably successful farming family, and this afforded him the opportunity to attend Oxford at the age of 12, um, and he was there from the years 1506 to 1516. Tyndall was interested in theology at a very early age into his studies, um, but he wasn't allowed to study it until eight or nine years into his education. And I, I found a, a quote that where he talks about this, where he was frustrated with um, his higher education systems for not allowing him to study. In this quote, he says, In the universities they have ordained that no man shall look upon the Scripture until he be nozzled or nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. The Scripture is locked up with false supposition and with false principles of natural philosophy. I just thought that was funny because it sounds a lot like our education system today but we're not here to talk about that so we're going to keep going so throughout his education uh, and personal study uh, William Tyndall ended up becoming proficient in eight languages eight and as a student he would later encounter the ideas of Wycliffe and the Lollards and would eventually become involved in a small group Bible study near the University of Cambridge where he had attended after he had left Oxford um, this, this small group Bible study met in a, in a pub at the bottom of this small inn called the White Horse Inn. And out of this small group of men that met and kind of discussed these reformed ideologies, eight of them in the coming years would go on to be martyred for their belief and their faith. Eight in a small group Bible study. So Tyndall would eventually ask for permission to translate the Bible into English, but he was denied. Uh, so amid threats of persecution, he fled to Germany to translate the New Testament in 1524. He would never again return to England. So you have this young man who decides the Lord's will for my life is to translate his word into a vernacular that the English-speaking people can understand. And he's so confident in this, and he's so sure of what God has for him that he leaves the only home he's ever known to go do this work where he would spend the most of his life in dark rooms, hidden away, small towns. He had to be very selective as to where he was going because once he got the Bible translated and copies ready to go out for whichever part he was working on, he had to be close to waterways where he could get shipments out 
um, he had to find a printer who was willing to use their press for something that was inevitably a death sentence. So here he leaves his only home to go on the run, basically, as a fugitive to translate the Bible. Um, so sure for, for God's will for himself as he leaves after being denied permission to translate the Bible into English, Tyndall exclaims, he says, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spare my life for many years, I will cause a boy that drive, driveth a plow to know more of Scripture than thou dost, speaking of the Pope. So that was William Tyndall's driving force. He wanted the man driving a plow in the field, the common man like you and I, to know more about the Scriptures because they could read it in their own language than the Pope did in Rome. Um, so as he goes on, as he begins this work of translating the Bible, um, he eventually finishes the New Testament in 1526. And before he's finished with it, um, the original man who he had made an agreement with to print this New Testament uh, had kind of had gone down to the local pub, sitting with his friends, and had he got kind of mouthy about the work that he was doing. And word got out, and one of Tyndall's close associates that was trusted and kind of in, in Tyndall's small group comes to Tyndall and says, hey, I was down here. The man who's supposed to be printing these copies is kind of telling everybody in the bar what, what's going on in this little pub. And obviously, Tyndall has to gather all of his stuff in a hurry and leave because if the word gets out and they find out who this is. So now he's got this New Testament finished, but he has to leave before he can print it and again go through this search of where do I go where I have some safety, a waterway close by, find a printer who will do this. Well, he finally does. So by the spring of 1526, um, he finds himself in Worms, Germany, and printed copies of the New Testament finally make their way out into England. And he, uh, he smuggled them in bales of cotton and some of the businessmen back in England who were financially supporting him had arranged to get this shipment of cotton. I want to say there was 3,000 copies that ended up landed in England. So that was the first time the New Testament had hit England in a vernacular that they could read and a very accurate one as well. And it was, and it was widely accessible versus having to hand copy it. They could print. Like I said, there was 3,000 copies. So as he continues on in 1529, uh, Tyndall was likely shipwrecked, losing his books, writing, and his working translation of the Pentateuch. Uh, but he, he still persisted. And ten months later, in 1530, he completed the translation of the Pentateuch. I can't imagine being on a ship with all of my writings and the work that he had put into this, being shipwrecked, stuff floating away, ruined, any parchment that he had. And he hits the shore, and what's he do? Put your head down and get started again. And ten months later, he succeeds. So, um, his life would kind of be this, really, he would just continue to move around. He had to for over ten years to try to stay away from any authorities that were looking for him. However, in 1535, he was captured by Henry Phillips, a man who deceived and betrayed him. Henry Phillips had kind of worked his way into Tyndall's inner group where he was at and some of the people around Tyndall were telling him hey we're not very we're, we're not comfortable with with this guy we don't know what the deal is but Tyndall was so enveloped in his work 
that he really had kind of let his guard down. And one evening, um, as he's working, Phillips comes up to him and says, hey, let's, let's, let's stretch our legs. Let's take a walk. Let's go. And as they come to a small alley, he kind of falls behind Tyndall and what I've read kind of starts pointing and men who were there, he had kind of arranged this ambush on Tyndall. So they capture Tyndall and they take him back to England and put him uh, in jail for 500 days. He was in a dark prison cell. But his work continued. Uh, he ended up writing a book entitled Faith Alone Justified Before God where he argued that this doctrine, justification by faith alone, is key to understanding the scriptures. So he's in jail for 500 days, and what you can imagine in 1535 is probably pretty poor living conditions. And as he has anything to get any messages out, he, he messages his friends, and he tells them, so, hey, it's bitter cold in here. They don't give me much food. I don't have much clothing. But if, if you could spare, could you send me some lantern oil and something to write with and write on? That was his focus. As he, he's not asking them for more clothing, more to help me get out. What, hey, I'm here. Please send me things that I can write with. And he ends up writing, if you go back and, and on your own time, we don't have time to talk about it today, but Faith Alone, uh, Justification Before God is one of his more popular uh, works and well-known. So after the 500 days, on October the 6th, 1536, at age 42, Tyndall would be martyred never making it past Second Chronicles. And not only was he, just, was, was he martyred for what he had done, but just to kind of put a, a scope around how the leaders that be at the time were so against the people having the Bible in their hands where they could understand it. They knew that the true power lied with the people knowing the Scripture. They knew that the Scripture was the true power. And if that was in the people's hands where they could understand it, it would erode the power at B. When they martyred him, they hung him with an iron chain over a pile of rubble with black powder tied all around his waist, all of, uh, around his body, so that when he finally, when they hung him and lit the powder off, there would be not even anything left for people to gather and create a scene over. They wanted there to be nothing to even celebrate left of this man, all because he wanted to have the Bible in a language that his fellow countrymen could understand. He would never finish the New Testament. Like I said, Second Chronicles was as far as he made it. But a close associate of his, Miles Coverdale, would later go on to finish um, the Old Testament. Uh, Miles Coverdale was one of the ones believed to be at the meetings at the White Horse Inn. Him and Tyndall had struck a friendship up there, and it kind of moved along, and uh, they were still friends when this happened. Um, so Tyndall's life is remarkable for many reasons. Um, he's a great example of how God will steward our gifts and use us for his purpose and to greater his kingdom. Um, we can see similarities in a number of callings that we are all in today, whether it be uh, in your homes as wives and mothers and husbands or in your workplaces, um, a pastor, we see God continue to steward those gifts. Um, and we're reminded, if there, without William Tyndall, the English Reformation would have been a much slower start without the people having the written word in their hands um, to fall back on. Moving on, the next uh, kind of key figure we're going to talk about here 
in the history of the church is King Henry VIII. So King Henry VIII um, ascended to the throne in 1509, and he weds Catherine of Argonne. Now, Catherine had been married to the king's older brother, Arthur, before when he was king. He had died. She was his widow. King Henry marries her. This whole marriage agreement, even from Arthur, was England's attempt with Spain to really kind of strengthen their bond as, as neighboring countries and, and, and just it was a advantageous for each country that, these, that they would marry together. So now Arthur dies. Henry marries Catherine of Argonne, who is a, a strict Roman Catholic. Um, and they begin to try to have children. The king needs a son to preserve his royal lineage. However, only a daughter is born um, in 1516 named Mary. Um, through that and other circumstances, the king begins to believe, well, my marriage must be cursed because I married my brother's wife. And he uses uh, some scripture in Leviticus uh, 20, 21, where it says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it's impurity. He's uncovered his brother's nakedness and shall be childless. So he takes that and tries to twist it to where, oh, my marriage is cursed. This was never a valid marriage anyways, which doesn't make sense because the scripture says we'll be childless, which they had children. So um, he begins to appeal to the pope at the time for an annulment. He says, hey, I need an annulment. Uh, this marriage was never... Um, true marriage because of these reasons and the pope the pope denies it so he tries to get kind of a, a band together to do some research go back to the pope and again it's denied um so he ends up promoting a man to take care of the matter and again after he fails he realizes well i'm the king in england uh i don't have to answer to the pope if i don't want to so Reformation Parliament begins, and he basically, out of the Reformation Parliament, separates England from the church in Rome, creating his own church that he is the head of. Um, the Reformation Parliament, basically their statement at the end of this was, uh, the only supreme head on earth of the Church of England, including the full power and authority, is the king. He is the head of the church. This, when I was studying this, was really a, a, a beautiful picture for me of how God will take something that man means for his own gain and use it for his. The king really didn't, he wasn't out for this reform to try to create this reformed church of England to get away from the uh, doctrine and theology of the Roman Catholic Church. He strictly needed a divorce. They wouldn't give him one, so he says, hey, I can handle this myself if you're not going to do it. I'll make my own church. But as we continue to study, we see where God takes that and he uses it for his good and glory. So something that the king really just meant for personal gain, you see God under the table intricately working, putting his church where he wants it. Um, he ends up promoting a man named uh, Thomas Cramner to take care of the, of the divorce. So after he gets separated from the church of Rome, Thomas Cramer annuls the marriage. However, before the marriage is actually finally annulled, the king quietly marries another woman um, named uh, Anne Bolin, which it was funny to me that 
he used the Leviticus passage. He's trying to use scripture to say why his last marriage is no good. Uh, but at the same time, he marries another woman before that marriage is even properly and legally, according to their systems, divorced. So it just kind of shows where his heart wasn't the reform of the church. He was strictly out for his own gain. But God was going to use that for his good. So now the Church of England was institutionally and organizationally separate from the church in Rome. However, it remained Roman Catholic in its theology. One of the men we just talked about, Thomas Cranmer, who helped the king in this the great matter, what he called it, um, we're, we're fixing to get into kind of his life and what he did for the Reformation. Um, he annulled the marriages of the king, and then later even Anne and the king again. The king would have, I think, eight wives before it was said and done. Um, but he was later appointed the Arch Archbishop of Canterbury, and he would work to reform the Church of England's theology. It was kind of subtle. Um, he wasn't, you, know, you think about the Martin Luthers who go with the 95 Thesis and a hammer and nail something to the door of a church, kind of in this bold statement. Thomas Cramner wasn't necessarily that he was more subtle with his reform it was, it was almost like he was trying to play the devil's advocate he wanted to keep both sides of the aisle happy um, but in that you finally start seeing some reformed doctrine make its way into the church of england and the two um, pieces of literature that really kind of brought that about were the book of common prayer and the 39 articles um, we don't have time obviously to break down the whole book of Common Prayer and 39 Articles, but we'll address kind of some of the key doctrinal issues that they began to reform. Uh, the book of Common Prayer addressed issues such as baptism and communion, uh, confirmation and other ceremonies that the Catholic Church had held, and the articles addressed things uh, such as the belief in the Holy Trinity, Scripture being sufficient for salvation, predestination and election, and how we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ um, by faith and not of our own works. Um, so with these two articles being introduced into the Church of England with their somewhat reformed mindset, this is kind of the first step we see of the Church of England start to separate from the church in Rome. Um, throughout this time, though, this progression largely depended on who was at power. So King Henry VIII, obviously we have the church separated from Rome. Now we have this English church. Um, although he, apart from that, the reform under him didn't, didn't progress much further than that. He did have a son to his third wife, finally. Um, her name was Jane Seymour. And after the king dies in 1547... This son, at a young age, takes um, the throne. So we're kind of going to look at, really quickly, just kind of through six, seven of the king or queens of the time, if the church was progression in the Reformation or regressing, depending on who was in charge. If the king or queen was, was favorable, uh, you would have progression in the Reformation. And if they were not, a lot of times, it would go the other direction. Um. So King uh, Edward VI, which was the son of Henry, um, that is where the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles were introduced. And he was 
really kind of a, um, a strong king for the people of the Reformation. Unfortunately, though, after six years as king, he would die. And the only, the oldest living child of the king was Mary, who was born to the king from his first wife. And we remember kind of the turmoil of their divorce. So you can imagine Catherine of Argonne not wanting her marriage annulled from the king because of its advantages, but him persistent in wanting to be divorced from her. They're divorced. He sends her back. Same with their daughter, Mary. So you can kind of imagine they probably didn't have the best relationship. They probably weren't super excited about England because, remember, Catherine was a strict Roman Catholic coming from Spain. Well, as Mary goes back with her mother, guess what Mary is? She's a strict Roman Catholic. She's been with her mother, and then also she probably has a bad taste in her mouth for England. Um, I didn't even know this was a real thing until a couple years ago as I was reading some church history stuff, but Bloody Mary, I, I just thought this was something that kids said in high school, you know, this was a real person. The woman hated Protestants and martyred almost 300 of them over the course of her reign. Um, so obviously, the Reformation was on hold for a while as she um, was queen in England. And then you see uh, Queen Elizabeth comes along. Uh, she is helpful to the Reformation. And we're going to talk about her kind of after this. She's kind of a unique, kind of shows where the reformers really wanted greater reform um, than what was taking place. But then you have King James. Uh, this is where the King James Bible comes from. And just kind of a quick note as we talked about William Tyndall. So King James assembled 47 scholars, biblical scholars, language scholars together to come up with his King James translation of the Bible. It's argued, and we're going to use the low number here, but 70% of what of the work that they did was just copy and paste from William Tyndall. 47 men who were deemed scholars in language and biblical matters could not improve upon the work that one man did. Um, there are numbers as high as 80, 85% that of what the King James Version was was just a copy and paste of William Tyndall. Um, so we're going to kind of go back to Queen Elizabeth, though, just to kind of understand the, the mind of these reformers. So Queen Elizabeth was good for the reform. However, in 59, she issues this uh, act of uniformity, which it aimed to standardize the worship practices in the church. She wanted them to look very, every, all of them to look very similar. Um, it required the Book of Common Prayer to be read, um, and that was a broadly reformed document, but there were several that still saw um, that it was containing a lot of um, Roman superstition and vestiges of, of popery. So a growing number of ministers argued that greater reform was needed to fully break away from Rome's practices. And uh, this kind of brings us to the next part of our church history into the age of the Puritans. So this reform had started, this English reform had started, and now this group of men, now that they have the English Bible in their hands and they can read it and they can know it and they learn and they say, hey, we're... This is still, we're trying to get to where what we're doing is based off of Scripture alone. 
we're not into the Roman superstitions or the or, or the um, you know the ceremonies that they hold. What does Scripture say? That's what we need to base our church off of and our beliefs. Defining the Puritans is kind of difficult. Um, they were basically just a group of people that sought greater reform. They wanted to move as far away from the church in Rome as they could in their theology and doctrine. And uh, throughout the years, we'll see these groups, uh, they, they really work hard and at great cost for greater doctrinal and ecclesiastical reform away from now the English church. And they received the name Puritan. It was, kind of a, it was, it was really kind of a dig on them. Um, uh, similar how we would, you know, like a goody two-shoes or, you know, they called him a Puritan as a insult, not as um, a defining term. Uh, so that moves us into kind of the first Puritan church in, in our uh, the handout that we're studying through and kind of the stuff that from Capitol Hill where we get our material, they talked about in there that, you know, we're not going to focus a lot on certain people, John Knox being one of them, but I didn't necessarily agree since I have a son named after him. So we're going to talk about John Knox just for a minute. So Knox was born to a family of devout Roman Catholics, uh, and he would eventually be groomed into the clergy of, Catholic, of the Catholic Church due to his excellence in his studies. Um, he wouldn't encounter influences of the Protestant Reformation for quite some while um, after his education as he begins to tutor two sons of Protestant families. This would be the first he hears about the kind of the Protestant and the Reformed way of thinking. Um, and, it, and it's unknown exactly when Knox was converted. However, he would soon become a major figure in the Reformation and Puritanism. And after years of um, really him kind of playing hard on the king and queen of England at the time too, um, he would eventually be asked to be the pastor over a, a church in Geneva, Switzerland. This was a small group of, it was a, probably a decent group of people then, but it was about 100 people who were um, reform-minded, and they were exiles uh, out of England. And he would be appointed pastor over them. And this church would really be the first place where we see any worship that resembled Roman Catholicism forsaken. Um, this included much of the uh, English church's practices, uh, and he would establish really a completely reformed church service and he, he would even hold the music to that which was found in the Psalms. They would only sing from the Psalms. Um, so Puritanism is born here. Martin Lloyd-Jones kind of talked about this, saying that, uh, you know, you really can't understand Puritanism and how it gets started without understanding this, this small church in Geneva. And he says, in Geneva, therefore, we have the first truly Puritan church among the English people. And John Knox is the founder of English Puritanism. He is also, he was also, while at Geneva, formulating his views in regard to the princes and attitudes to Christians toward the powers that be. Here he was ahead of Calvin, and this is again a sign of his true Puritanism. I maintain that one cannot truly understand the revolution that took place here in England in the next century except in the light of his teaching. Here was the first opening of the door that led to the later development called Puritanism. So in the coming decades, the Puritan uh, churches would start to appear more frequently, and they would resemble what Knox started in Geneva. And 
they would continue to move further and further away from the practices of the Church of England because they believed that they had not gone far enough in reforming. So they were doing away with any tradition and Roman Catholic um, doctrine and holding fast to only that which was found in the Scriptures. Um, as we move into the next century, you see uh, kind of one of the most significant movements of this time and something that y'all will probably all be familiar with, at least the name of, was in 1643, the Westminster Assembly. Um, tensions were high between the Crown and Parliament, and they had this assembly of theologians come together um, to further reform the church. And it was forbidden for them after a while to even gather, however they continued, and this assembly produced a confession of faith, faith that we known as the Westminster Confession. And in this was two catechisms, the larger and shorter Westminster Catechism, um, and a handbook of worship. And um, this really wasn't, uh, this was a kind of a broad group of people. Um, they describe it as being theologically monolithic. It included Presbyterians and Independents, modern Episcopalians and Erastians. So this wasn't just one group of people that kind of got started. This was kind of a, several groups of Reformed individuals who got together in this assembly. And some, um, one of the things that was affirmed here that was a huge doctrinal issue for them at the time, um, it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deducted from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things that are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So this whole scripture alone mindset was really what was driving these people forward. If it is not found in scripture, we need to do away with it. Um, and many subsequent reform movements would draw from the work of that assembly. Uh, the Savoy Declaration of 1660 was a congregational revision of the Westminster Confession and later in 1689, the London Baptist Confession was also a revision with a particular, uh, particularly Baptist um, revision of the Westminster Catechism um, Confession. So, as we move as we move forward, the Puritans here into the 17th century, they continue to battle this. They meet together and continue this reform, but continually also having the whoever the power in England is at the time breathing down their neck trying to get them to stop their movement away from the Church of England. Um, and there's a major division here in the 16th and 17th centuries over the conformity to the Book of Common Prayer. And this act of uniformity, as we talked about before from Queen Elizabeth, um, the Puritans were not happy about and finally got to the point where they were not they weren't going to um, do as the queen had said and uh, there was a particular day on 
uh, 24th of August in 1662 called the Great Ejection, later become known as Black Bartholomew's Day, where thousands of ministers in a single day are taken from their pulpits and their churches because they refused to conform to this act of uniformity from the queen. Again, they were going back continually to scripture alone. We don't care what the Queen of England says we need to do in this church. If it's not found in Scripture, we're not going to do it. Um, so you see this, this work of Reformation was long and tumultuous. I mean, it took years of ebb and flow where you would have years and times where, depending on who's in charge, um, these reformers would have great success. And then there were years where you have Bloody Mary where she burns almost 300 people at the stake for being Protestants. Um, there were different views on the Book of Common Prayer and, and uh, the 39 Articles, but they were reformed documents that continued to move the church uh, forward. And many, grant, many, many men saw this reform worthy of their life's work. This, is, this, is, this was their life, was reforming this church. And uh, they didn't care about what the consequences may be for them being caught. They only cared about bringing the church back to her core doctrines. And uh, in that, several things became clear to them that, again, we probably all know and heard of today, the five solas. That was their driving force. That was what was behind them, driving them forward to continue no matter the consequences. Um, when looking at the Puritans especially, and the reformers, I think about uh, the scripture in Luke where it talks about uh, no one who puts his hand to a plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This whole, this whole period as the Reformation starts and we move into Puritanism and this, the church is being reformed, you see a lot of people who grabbed the plow and didn't look back. And they didn't, they didn't care what it was that God had put in front of them. They knew this is God's will for my life, and I don't care what the consequences are, and they grabbed onto the plow, and they looked ahead at whatever God had for them. And uh, I know in my own life, I need to be better about whatever work God has put in front of me, being intentional about that, and putting my hands to the plow. Um, so their knowledge of the word is what really drove these men forward and started to shape their theology and their theology shaped the doctrines that they introduced into this church, and it set a fire uh, among these English-speaking people. Um, throughout the Reformation the, and Puritan movement, five things became clear. The solas, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and, and sola deo gloria. These men would come to believe that Scripture alone was where God revealed himself to his people. And through the study of Scripture, it was clear that God's salvation was only received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that all of these things were to the glory of God alone. It was what these men believed that continued to drive them forward. Our theology is important. Their theology is what gave them this confidence to go forward and say, no, I don't care what the, the, the king in England is telling me. There's a greater king, and his word and his scripture tells me this. So what we believe is important. Um, until a few years ago, I always thought theology was for 
the super Christians, you know. I don't need to know theology. I'm just a pew warmer. You know, I, I sing and do that. The preacher needs to know about theology. That's not true. We all need to be knowing what we believe and why we believe it. Our theology is what forms our worldview. Is it a biblical worldview based on our theology? Do we let the world into it more often than not, more often than we should? Absolutely. Are we committed to the work that God's given each of us like these reformers were? Um, I can't imagine. We always, you know, we talk about persecution today. I can't imagine being William Tyndall leaving my home country to go translate a Bible that I know if I'm caught is a death sentence. I can't imagine as a Puritan looking at the king or queen in England and telling them that I will not submit to what they say my worship should be. I will only submit to what I find to be in Scripture. We have it much easier today, thankfully. Um, but even with that being said, I pray that Christ Community Church is is a group of people who are coming together to study the Word and to learn about theology and understand why we believe what we believe and that God is preparing men and women in this place to go out and uh, that this maybe one day is, is the next white horse in where we have men that go out and, and women and go out into the world in such a bold way that they can't be overlooked for, for Christ. Um, that's really the end of the period that we're looking at today. Uh, thank you all for your time and cooperation. And I apologize for being scatterbrained, not presenting probably as well as it should have been. But there's so much in this time period that is interesting stuff to read that we just don't have time to go. Um, in the handout, there's some names throughout there. You can find short biographies over each of these people, 100, 100 pages that are awesome to read. Um, so in your own time, if you're interested in looking at some of that stuff, man, dive into this because it really is an interesting period, especially for us as English-speaking people of the church. We're directly related to this in, in, a, in a sense that if it wasn't for this reform, we wouldn't be here today. And I know that they're going to work as church history goes on in the next four weeks all the way up to our congregation here. So I will pray we'll be dismissed until it is time to start our worship service. Father, thank you uh, again for just allowing us to gather here in a, in a place, Father, where we can come and not fear the persecution that many of these that have gone before us feared. Father, we don't have to worry um, about, about our children learning the Bible in English like some of these people did. Uh, Help us to be grateful for that, Father, and thankful uh, that we have that opportunity here. Just continue to grow our church, Father. Help us to continue to understand the importance of the history of your church and just see your glory throughout, um, throughout its life and as you continue to grow it into what it is today, Father. Uh, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.